College presidents can decrease commercialization by working together through conferences. They can limit the times and days when basketball games are played, limit the number of breaks for commercials. They do not have to follow the professional model. They can limit, not eliminate, but limit advertising and stadiums, logos worn by players and coaches. What's the consequences of bringing order to this system? It's a reduced revenue stream. Is that good? Yes. It will create needs for cost containment and will bring under control the arms race. Provided, of course, that university presidents and university administrators don't succumb to the pressure to reallocate academically based money for athletics at that point. Understand this. The issue is not the amount of revenue that comes in. We should do everything we can within the values and mission of higher education to maximize revenues to these programs. That is what the rest of the campus is doing in their areas, and athletics must do the same. But there appears to be confusion about this point in some quarters. In two weeks, we will respond to a letter from the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee about the tax-exempt status of intercollegiate athletics. Should college athletes receive stipends? No. <laughs> what, why, why not? <laughs> if by stipends you mean pay for play, absolutely not. If you enjoy professional sports, um, go watch the Redskins or the Indianapolis Colts. Um, you've got to remember the difference between professional sports and college sports. Here's the difference. It's very simple. Those who engage in intercollegiate athletics are students. We don't pay English majors. We don't pay those who participate in theater. And we don't pay student athletes. You talked about the uh, request from the House Ways and Means Committee for information. How concerned are you about the inquiry into the tax exempt status of college sports? And this question wants to know other aspects of it that are hard to defend. We're absolutely certain that we're in full compliance with IRS standards, and uh, we've been uh, ably advised by outside counsel along those lines. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. All of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I have some good stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for about two years now. And that is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today we're going to start talking about the collegiate model of athletics. When I say that phrase, I wonder what comes to your mind. This is a really interesting turn in the relationship between revenue producing athletes and the big time powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries because it really puts into perspective the true importance of revenue producing athletes in the overall business model and the revenue generating capacity of the two most important products in the marketplace. And that is big time football, power five football and big time or power five men's basketball. In the last episode, we talked a lot about the phrase, the student athlete. And we talked about how Walter Byers and NCAA lawyers invented that phrase out of thin air in the 1950s as a tactic to avoid workers' compensation liability. And they insinuated that phrase into the language of big-time college sports. And over the years, remember, that was 70 years ago. So the student-athlete has been marinating in all of this NCAA propaganda for 70 years. And it now has breathtaking normative value. It's acquired a secondary meaning as a statement of the quote-unquote amateur relationship between athletes and the universities that they play for. And as we discussed in detail, it is an absolute fraud. The same can be said of the collegiate model. And I talked a little bit about the collegiate model in an episode leading up to the Austin oral argument. And I think that was when I was talking about amateurism. I did an episode on amateurism. And I talked a bit about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and a little bit about its history. But I want to talk about it a little bit differently now, because this phrase has become a weapon 
of inside stakeholder beneficiaries and external independent, quote unquote, reform-minded advocates who are pumping NCAA propaganda. And just like the term amateurism, just like the concept of amateurism, the collegiate model has been put to a number of different uses. But as with amateurism, there is simply no clear, intelligent, coherent definition of the collegiate model. And in all of the purposes to which it's been put, just like amateurism, its only practical functional value is as a means to justify the maximum exploitation of revenue-producing big-time football and big-time men's basketball players, so long as that revenue is taken and diverted to interests and people and programs that the university can claim is consistent with its nonprofit mission. What that amounts to in the athletics context is the diversion of wealth from black laborers to wealthy white beneficiaries. And that aspect of the collegiate model has gotten virtually no attention. And I'm going to wind up focusing on that, but it's really important to press rewind and look at the history of this phrase, the collegiate model, and how it was integrated into the NCAA's pre-existing propaganda, like the student-athlete, and amateurism. And I mentioned at the very beginning that there really has been very little written about the collegiate model. And there are two resources that I'm going to use in this episode that are the only two I've found that really talk about the collegiate model in any detail. And one is an article that was written in 2013 by Richard Southall, who was a professor at the University of South Carolina, and Ellen Starowski, who was a professor at Drexel University. And both Southall and Starowski are no strangers to athletes' rights. Southall testified in Congress in 2014 and has written extensively really on how the NCAA has propagandized these terms to suit its interest. And it's a fascinating analysis in that regard. And then Professor Starowski was co-author of the 1998 book, College Athletes for Hire. And she also testified in O'Bannon. I'm not sure if she testified in Austin as well, but both have been, I think, on the on the right side of this argument. And the name of that article is Cheering on the Collegiate Model, Creating, Disseminating, and Embedding the NCAA's Redefinition of Amateurism. And I'm going to use some of the framework of that article to explain how this term, this collegiate model term, was a classic piece of propaganda in which the NCAA used terms and tactics that were almost identical to how they insinuated the phrase the student-athlete into the lexicon of big-time college sports. And South Hall and Starowski talk about Byers' use of the invention and use of the term a student-athlete really as a springboard into their analysis of the collegiate model. And then in 2018, in a book titled Indentured, the Battle to End the Exploitation of College Athletes. Joe Nocera, who I think is a New York Times editorialist, or was, and he has written on athletes' rights. He wrote this book, and it really covers the O'Bannon trial and talks about how that played out. And it's a great read. I, I highly recommend it. And there's an appendix by a guy named Andy Schwartz, who I've mentioned before, who was a sports economist, where he takes on a, a number of the myths that surround college sports. And that is a really good piece as well. So I recommend the book. And I'm going to use Schwartz's uh, myth format as a springboard into uh, my discussion of the major myths that surround college sports. But Nocera devotes an entire chapter to the collegiate model. And he says something, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole book, and he's talking about the connection between the student-athlete and the phrase, the collegiate model. And, and Nocera says, if the phrase student-athlete had been Walter Byer's great propagandist coup, then the collegiate model was brand. And that's a great line. But I'm going to treat the history of the collegiate model much differently because neither the Southall Storowski article or the Nocera book really talk about the context in which the collegiate model was invented and the uses to which it was put. Because when you look at Miles Brand's tenure and the way that he tried to resolve this century-long tension between this highly professionalized product and the unpaid 
labor force or underpaid labor force. What I think is pretty clear is that he was doing that under enormous duress from potential external regulators. And in the timeline that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go through all of the ways that Congress primarily, but also federal courts, started to really close the walls in on some of the basic assumptions and premises that underlie the big-time college sports marketplace. And when you look at Brand's invention of the collegiate model, the way it was framed, and then how it was used, you start to see that there may have been an ulterior motive there that went directly to responding to these external regulatory threats. And that really sets the foundation for this perfect storm that began in 2006 with the filing of the White case. And I'm going to bring in my timeline on this collegiate model discussion, I'm going to bring us through 2006. And you have to go like month by month to see what was happening in real time and how Miles Brand used the collegiate model and the media and another speech at the National Press Club to really fend off some heat that was coming from Congress at the time. And so this history of the relationship between the revenue-producing athlete and the NCAA on the one hand, and more importantly, the universities on the other, brings us back almost no matter what road you take. You're coming back to the NCAA defending this single compensation cap that was set in 1956, and then coming to the view that the only way to do that with any permanence is to eliminate external regulators. So what I'm going to do to try to connect up 1956 and then 2001, which is really the beginning of this collegiate model discussion, I want to talk about some of the milestones that occurred that do go to some fundamental changes in the nature of the athletic scholarship and then the acquisition of power by the big-time football interests and their takeover of NCAA governance and then Board of Regents and a series of other events to bring a slow roll into this era under Miles Brand that saw the powerful interests in the big-time college sports marketplace starting to think about the campaign to eliminate these external threats. And that is a really important understanding in the history of big-time college sports. So, all right, so let's go back to 1956. And then the next most important milestone after that occurred in 1973. And a few things happened in 1973 that were really important. And that, as I alluded to in some of the early episodes in the podcast, that was a time when the big-time football interests were starting to flex their muscle. We're a couple of decades into the television era. And the NCAA had absolute control of television from 1951 to 1981. And the NCAA insisted on dividing the NCAA membership into three divisions, which had the effect of separating the powerful football interests into the Division One, which really gave them a level of autonomy in, in this game to separate and segregate and advance their interests under the NCAA umbrella. This was really the, the beginning. And then in that same year, freshmen became eligible to play on football and men's basketball rosters. And that was a big change that enhanced the overall pool of talent. And it also changed recruiting. And then with respect to the scholarship, and I mentioned this in the last episode, but I, I don't think that I did it justice. So in 1973, and this was a coach-driven initiative, the big-time football coaches wanted more control over the labor pool. And remember, when the athletic scholarship was put together in 1956, it had a, a four-year scholarship window. So it wasn't a one-year renewable scholarship, and the four-year scholarship was designed to ameliorate the impact of an obviously professionalized relationship that was true pay-for-play. It also served to beat back the workers' compensation threat because if the contract was for four years and the student would get the scholarship even if he was hurt or didn't play, then that looks much less like a contract for hire, whereas these one-year renewable scholarships do. And it's important to understand that there wasn't merely an option to go to the one-year renewable scholarship when that change was made in 1973. It was required. So 
a university didn't have the authority under that new regulation, NCAA regulation, to offer more than a one-year scholarship, which gave coaches enormous control over the labor force, essentially. And because there weren't meaningful scholarship limits, coaches were over-recruiting and holding essentially open tryouts. And if you made the cut, your scholarship was renewed. If you didn't, you were told to pack your bags and leave. And then the same thing happened the next year. So every year you you had this crazy competition for a spot on the roster. It was really a system that added to the exploitative relationship between in-system stakeholders and the revenue-producing athletes. And then another thing that happened in 1973, and I didn't mention this at all in the last episode, and that was an oversight, but one of the components of this 1956 scholarship was something called laundry money. And that, according to Walter Byers, when it was that scholarship was originally put together, laundry money was $15 a month and was used for sundry expenses, kind of pocket change and just have it, have some walking around money to pay for the incidental costs of attending college. That $15 a month today would come out to about $150 a month, which would add up to about $1,400 a year. And the purpose of the money is really similar to, I would say, indistinguishable from what came to be the full cost of attendance stipend, this additional money under federal calculations that went to the same purpose. But in 1973, that money went away. And the athletes had an athletic scholarship that was set below the full cost of attendance. And that's relevant to the white suit and all of this discussion about full cost of attendance scholarships, because When you look at it historically, despite the NCAA's characterization of this as some massive leap forward, I mean, they were saying after 1973 that any payment above the scholarship limit was pay for play, was professionalism. And they had done it just before 1973, done it for almost 20 years. And so when you look at it historically, these cost of attendance stipends that came into existence uh, during O'Bannon in 2014 and were the subject of the white lawsuit, really it was just a return to a status quo which it had existed after 1956. And the NCAA just played both sides of that coin to suit its interests. But the bottom line in the way that it handled those changes was that it wanted absolute control over the compensation limit. And that's what it wants today. Okay, so then in 1977, we start to see a more aggressive approach by the big-time powerful football interests to aggregate their power and exert it to challenge the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. And so you had the creation of the College Football Association, which was comprised largely of the Southern Conferences, what are now the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12. And they were on one side of the fence and trying to be really assertive in having a larger piece of that television pie. Whereas the what were then the Pac-8 and the Big 10, I'm just going to call them by their current names. So the Pac-12 and the Big 10 weren't part of this movement. They were with the NCAA and their television plan. And that turned into a civil war that's reminiscent of, of the rift that expressed itself during the Sanity Code debate, which went back to World War II. And that played out ultimately in 1981 with the Board of Regents lawsuit. But between 1977, the formation of the College Football Association and the filing of their suit against the NCAA, in 1978, the big-time football interests again demanded, under threats of secession, that their football interests be further separated within Division One. The NCAA acquiesced to those demands and further separated out the football interests into Division 1A and Division 1AA. And Division 1A are all the big-time powerful football interests. You've got uh, about 120 schools that are now the Power Five and the Group of Five, and they now fly under the classification of the football bowl subdivision. And then, of course, we had what may be, to date, the most important single event in the history of college sports, and that was the ruling in the Board of Regents decision where the 
big-time powerful football interests, largely from the South, won their antitrust standoff with the NCAA over the NCAA's monopoly of televised football, and big-time football gained its financial freedom, and it fundamentally changed the nature of big-time college sports and the marketplace of big-time college sports. So then we're rolling into the 1990s and the football market starting to shake itself out. The NCAA is left with its consolation prize, which is the Division I Men's Basketball Championship, now known as March Madness. They begin exploiting the heck out of that. Big-time football is finding ways to reorganize itself and try to maximize the revenue-generating capacity of big-time college football. And at the same time, they are acquiring more and more power under the NCAA umbrella. So you had this movement starting with the Knight Commission in 1991 to put the presidents in charge of what many perceived to be a growing and out-of-control beast that is big-time football and Division I men's basketball. And you had schools feeling like their academic mission was under existential assault. So as a result of the 1991 Knight Commission, you had presidents being responsible for the conduct of intercollegiate sports. The buck stopped with them, and it was a failed movement, and I talked about that in episode three. So if you want to hear a discussion about presidential leadership, you can go back to episode three. And then in 1996-97, the big-time football interest struck again, and under threats and demands, they insisted on the elimination of the one school, one vote legislative process in the NCAA. And they wanted the NCAA to adopt a federated system, a representative-based system. And in that system, particularly the composition of what is now the NCAA Board of Governors and also the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, the presidents who represented those seats were going to come from big-time football schools, and they were going to be top-heavy with football interests. And the structure of Division One was explicitly defined by football interests. So the big-time football interests really achieved a major coup in 1996-97. This also coincided with really the beginning waves of conference realignment through which all these big-time football schools were trying to add more football firepower to their conference package so that they could go out into the marketplace and sell more lucrative football contracts to broadcast media outlets. And that really started to destabilize the existing region-based conference structure. And it was the beginning phase of the creation of what would become this juggernaut known as the Power Five Conferences. And the big payoff games, like the end-of-year championship payoff games, were done through the big bowls. And so the big-time football interests started to come back together to try to find ways to maximize the value of the bowl games. And that started first with what was called the Bowl Alliance, and then it transitioned to the Bowl Championship Series. But built around that cash cow were direct tie-ins by the big-time powerful football interests to the major bowl games. And that generated an enormous amount of ill will with the smaller schools who had really good football products, but who felt like they were frozen out. This goes back to the haves and the have-nots that Keith Dunavant described in his book, The 50-Year Seduction. In the discussions of the transformation of the Bowl Alliance into the Bowl Championship Series, Congress got involved, and they were concerned about the the have-have-not dynamic in the Bowl Alliance structure. And in 1997, both the House and the Senate held hearings expressing concerns about the antitrust implications of the way that this Bowl Championship series was being structured premised around this fundamental belief that the Bowl Championship Series was just another way for the rich to get richer and for the poor to be completely excluded from any chance of being able to compete on a level playing field for those coveted bowl spots. And the other thing that happened in connection with those debates, and I mentioned this during the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes, is that the Rose Bowl, which had been the exclusive property and domain of the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, and they had tie-ins to that, they 
folded the Rose Bowl into the Bowl Championship Series so that it could be a host to a true championship game. And the Big Ten and Pac-12 portrayed that in Congress as this massive concession, like they were giving up this prized asset. And it, it was the most valuable bowl game, no doubt, and had the longest tradition. And it in the bowl tiering, it was really at the top. So folding the Rose Bowl into the BCS was important for two reasons. One, it really aggregated the financial capacity, the revenue generating capacity of the big time bowl games. But more importantly, it really started to soften this rift between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten on the one hand, and then the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 on the other, which goes back to the sanity code. And so they're all coming together. And as the market is redefining itself post-Board of Regents, these powerful interests, along with conference realignment, they're cooperating. They're cooperating to maximize the overall value of the big-time college football product. But the threat that Congress was going to come in and pass a law that was contrary to the wishes and the financial interests of the big-time football powerhouses was was real. And that fear started, I think, to evolve into a pattern that's played itself out over and over again. And that is that these interests get hauled before Congress, and then they put together some Mickey Mouse arguments that are really difficult to accept. And that's reflected in the reaction of a lot of the congressmen and women who, who heard these rationalizations. But the bottom line position that the powerful football interest took was, we're going to do the right thing. Just trust us. Just leave us alone. Don't legislate. And many of the senators and representatives that were participating in these hearings were saying to them, you don't want us to get involved. You really don't want us to pass a bill. But you're not doing anything on your own. You're acting out of self-interest. You're acting purely for your commercial advantage. And you're doing it under this nonprofit umbrella in a values-based model that's supposedly oriented towards the education of students at your universities. And we're not seeing that. What we're seeing is just greed and exploitation. And we think there's a problem. We think there are antitrust implications. And if you don't do something, we're going to do it for you. So that approach to external threats really started to sit in in 1997. And then it played forward time and time again. So we get through the 1997 time frame, and then we are heading into the new millennium. And in that transition, we also see a transition into what I think is probably the second most important NCAA leadership era, and that is Miles Brand's tenure from 2002 to 2009, second only to Walter Byers' tenure, which spanned 36 years, 1951 to 1987. And Byers was the architect of the modern NCAA. But Brand, in many ways, was just as assertive and aggressive in promoting commercial interests as Walter Byers was. And his coming out party, as I have discussed in prior episodes and mentioned at the beginning of this episode, was a speech before the National Press Club in 2001. And he was coming off firing Bob Knight And he was the toast of the town in academic circles. And he delivered a speech that I characterized as perhaps the most consequential 30-minute speech in the modern history of big-time college sports because it set the template for a way for brand to try to resolve this fundamental century-long tension between the demand for the most professionalized big-time football and men's basketball product in the marketplace, and the institutional insistence on amateurism and enforcing this compensation limit that was set at the value of the athletic scholarship. And at that time, Miles Brand was the president of Indiana University. The following year, he would become president of the NCAA. And the language that Brand was speaking in 2001 was different in kind than the language he was speaking in front of that same audience five years later in 2006 when he was trying to beat back an attempt by the House Ways and Means Committee to have the NCAA football and basketball products be declared inconsistent with the NCAA's tax-exempt status. 
So in the opening montage, I played several clips from Miles Brandt. The first clip was from the 2001 speech that he gave. And in that speech, Brand was speaking the language of athletic reformists and the perspective that he had that ran through the reform movement mindset was an academic elitist mindset. It came from the academy. It came from professors. It came from external reform organizations and foundations, including the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, the Andrew Mellon Foundation, through which a number of academic books were published that were openly hostile to big-time college athletics. And Brand even cites one of those books, and it was published the same year that Brand gave his speech, and it is called The Game of Life, and it was written by James Shulman and William Bowen, both of whom were working for the Mellon Foundation at the time. Brand invoked their work to explicitly endorse some of their findings that went to undermining the narrative that big-time college sports have any benefit to the university and the academic mission of the university. So Brand invokes Shulman and Bowen's work for the proposition that successful big-time college sports programs do not result in increased giving. In fact, according to Brand, Shulman and Bowen concluded that there was actually a negative correlation between giving and the success of the athletics teams and that large gifts tended to dry up when the big time football or big time basketball program won a national championship. And these narratives similarly delegitimized the suggestion that the applicant pool increased with the success of a particular school's football or basketball team, the so-called Flutie effect. And so you had this mindset that Brand brought into this speech, which was a mindset that was in many ways hostile to having big time college sports define the identity of the university. And again, you're back to some of these same historical criticisms of big time football and big time basketball that date back to the 1920s and the Carnegie Report and then have been pulled through through all these reform efforts. And the underlying common thread is that there's something wrong. Big time sports are out of control. The tail is wagging the dog. Something needs to be done immediately, immediately. And that was really, I think, the dominant theme in Brandt's 2001 speech. But by the same token, he tried to strike a middle ground. So he framed the debate in terms of those who would simply abolish big-time college sports, do what the University of Chicago did in the 1930s and 40s, and just get off the treadmill. We're done. We quit. Which they could do. And then the other end of the spectrum, as Brand defined it, was the open professionalization of football and men's basketball. And so those were straw extremes, but he used them for a purpose, and that was to say that there is some middle ground. He did not use the term the collegiate model, but at least at the conceptual level, he was beginning to think about bringing those two extremes together in some coherent way, something that nobody else had been able to do. And all these reform movements and all of these narratives that have developed since the Carnegie Report really assume that those two things can't be reconciled and that the only way that can happen is at the institutional level. And then there's this presidential control theory that would be the the magic salve for, for these irreconcilable tensions. But you really haven't had a formal, a theoretical way to bring those two things together. So Brand sort of set those boundaries in the 2001 speech, but he erred on the side of the academic interests. And I don't think there's any question about that. So in that opening quote, he is parroting the concerns of academic reformists when he talks about the ways that universities and conferences can pull back on commercialization and professionalization. And he talks about limiting the amount of time that athletes spend on athletic endeavors, the number of games that are played, the number of breaks for commercials, turning players into human billboards by allowing shoe logos on their bodies, and then using corporate sponsors to underwrite stadium costs. And he says, we can pull back on all of that. And that is a good thing. And then he says, he says, what are the consequences of bringing order to this system? 
It's reduced revenue streams. Is that good? Yes, Brand says with emphasis. And he goes on to say that reducing revenue will create needs for cost containment and will bring the out-of-control arms race under control. And then Brand closes out his speech by repeating the same line twice. He says, we must renew the reform movement, academics first. We must renew the reform movement, academics first. So I don't think you can come away from that speech and conclude that Miles Brand just two years later, was going to invent out of whole cloth a theory that was ostensibly designed to reconcile the tensions between professionalism and academic missions and academic integrity that would require the maximum commercial and financial exploitation of big-time men's football and big-time men's basketball. I mean, those two theories are simply incompatible. And that next clip that you heard in the opening montage was a quote from Miles Brand's 2006 speech. And in that speech, he has formed the collegiate model. He's delivered it to the NCAA, his state of the association address at the beginning of 2006. And he is basically saying, we have an absolute duty to exploit football and men's basketball to generate revenue. The, it's just an incredible about face. And that's what I think Nocera was talking about in his book about the brand becoming the fox in the hen house. And I think there is ample evidence to support that. So the year after Brand delivers that speech, he becomes president of the NCAA. So we're into 2002 here. And then very soon after assuming the NCAA presidency, Brand is faced with his first big challenge, renewed external regulatory threat from Congress. So the BCS, the Bowl Championship Series, this big football bowl extravaganza that's bringing in tons of money, is now maturing and it's been in place since 1998. And the gap between the haves and the have-nots has only grown. And you had increasing frustration among the second tier schools and they caught the ear of Congress. And so in 2003, there were some very contentious hearings in the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. And why was judiciary involved in both chambers? Because those committees have first-line authority and oversight of antitrust issues. And the purpose of the hearings was to really put some heat on the BCS members. Really, at this point, again, you have conference realignment coming into shape, and you have the beginning of the formation of this juggernaut Power 5 product. And there was a sense that as they were aggregating their power, and as the market grew, and the bowls were more and more valuable, that the gap between the haves and have-nots was really causing some problems. So the Senate and the House stepped in and basically told the big-time football interests that they better get to the bargaining table with these smaller schools and craft some kind of a compromise that makes a more level playing field, or else the Senate and the House were going to come in, and they were like-minded at that time, to bring the hammer down on the NCAA and the big-time football interests. And Miles Brand testified at both of those hearings. And at the Senate hearing, during his opening remarks, Brand said something that was, and I've played this part of a montage in earlier episodes on what the NCAA is, because Brand went into some lecture about, well, you don't understand what the NCAA is, and we're just doing the will of the people, and it's really a membership-driven organization, deflecting all responsibility, when in fact, the national office and the big-time bowls and the powerful football schools were in bed in this whole product that was coming out of the BCS, even though the NCAA didn't get a penny of the revenue. But Miles Brand was on on board with that. And of course, he's getting all the March Madness money. So he's happy. The national office is happy. But Miles Brand basically said to the Senate Judiciary Committee that, look, this is just the free market doing what the free market does. And then sitting next to him was a guy named Harvey Perlman, who was then the chancellor of the University of Nebraska parroting the same thing. So they were two peas in a pod, basically making the argument, hey, this is what America is about. And we just
just have a better product and consumers want to see us play and they don't want to see these other guys play, why should we be penalized? Why are you going to take money from us and give it to them? And that irony is just so rich. I couldn't resist it. So I put quotes from both of those guys, Brand and Perlman. I think that was in my first episode, my very first episode, just to highlight that profound hypocrisy. But Brand basically drew a line in the sand and said, we're not sharing our money. And Perlman comes in and makes some speech about how this is America. And I thought in this country, if you worked hard and you did the right things and you were successful, that you should be able to receive the benefits of all that work and labor, all this stuff. And again, this was kind of organization to organization. They weren't really thinking about the hypocrisy between that position and the limitations they place on athletes who provide all the value in the product. But It was clear that they were basically saying up yours to the small schools. Ultimately, as a result of those hearings, the two sides reached some kind of a compromise that I think was the genesis for including this group of five conferences, the lower tier conferences, in the college football playoff format when that was put into place in 2012 because it eliminated or minimized the possibility that the Power Five acting alone with the CFP were going to have to defend an antitrust suit by this second group of schools. So they've worked the issues out. But despite the NCAA and the Power Five saying that it's a fair format, there hasn't been a school that's made the college football playoff. And the revenue distribution formula is 80% Power Five and 20% other interests. So the big time football interests are having their cake and eating it too. And again, all of this money, all this money is outside the NCAA's pile of cash. The NCAA has zero control over the postseason football games. They have no control over any aspect of big time college football because of Board of Regents. And so another interesting aspect of that hearing or that those two hearings was that Brand was actually carrying the water for the big time football interest. And in many ways, the NCAA really doesn't have much skin in that game directly in terms of being a spokesperson for the big time power five football interest. It certainly has skin in the game in this detente they've reached with big time football, which is here's your consolation prize, your March Madness money. You can spread that around if you want, but we're not going to spread our money around. And you take that money and you make yourself happy. You do all of our administrative work for us and we'll rock along and just leave each other alone. So you had this extraordinary external pressure being brought to bear on the NCAA. And again, no one else who's talked about the collegiate model has talked about it in the context of what was actually happening at the time. And on the backside of those hearings, you have the the NCAA and Miles Brand trying to come up with some way to mitigate the obviously anti-competitive components of their business model and the sense that was growing in Congress. It expressed itself in the 1997 hearings, and it had grown substantially in these 2003 hearings. And that is that this business of big-time college sports was just out of control and that the powerful football interests, the big time conferences cared about one thing and one thing only, and that was making money and making more money. And how do you square that with your claims that you are an education nonprofit and that your primary purpose is an educational one? And those two things simply weren't lining up. So I don't think Miles Brand just woke up one day and say, oh, I I think I need to invent the collegiate model. No, there was a context for that. And the context was extraordinarily powerful heat from external regulators. And it it happened to take the form of the House and Senate Judiciary Oversight Authority on antitrust issues. So the NCAA needed to, I think, start to strategize on how they were going to harmonize this massive gap between what they were actually doing and what they claimed that they were supposed to be doing. Enter the collegiate model of athletics. And this was devised really in 2003 and then was previewed in 2004 in Brand's State of the Association speech. But the most interesting history of the collegiate model came from a guy named 
Wally Renfro. And Wally Renfro is one of these guys who was at the NCAA for forever. And he survived through a number of different NCAA administrations. And he was one of these guys who just had influence, but you're not quite sure what he did. And Nocera, in his book, Indentured, referred to Renfro as a minister without portfolio. And I think that's a pretty good description. But he had all of the revealed wisdom of the NCAA national office, and he knew where the bodies were buried. And so he had a enormous influence and power. And so he helped Mark Emmert understand exactly what the collegiate model was. So I'm going to use some excerpts of Renfro's memo to Mark Emmert in 2010 to help you understand what they were trying to do in 2003-2004. So Renfro says, The term of art, the collegiate model of athletics, was created by Miles Brand as a surrogate for, but not a replacement for, the concept of amateurism to the degree that it was too frequently used as a descriptor for intercollegiate athletics. He, meaning Brand, wanted to change the way people talked about intercollegiate athletics. It will be critical to begin reestablishing through messaging with the use of various communication platforms the concept of the collegiate model. It is also critical to understand that the term serves as a template for behavior by those who engage in college sports. The consistent use of the term with the steady drumbeat of what it means can be an effective constraint on practices that threaten those firmly held perceptions that endear college sports to the American public. Does the tone of Renfro's memo sound familiar? It does to me. That's exactly the way that Walter Byers talked about his creation of the phrase student-athlete. And the formulation of the collegiate model was done for the same purpose. This is linguistics subterfuge to serve multiple purposes. But as Renfro is describing its original purpose, he's talking about really trying to move away from the use of amateurism into some other expression that doesn't have the baggage of amateurism. But the money line in that description of the collegiate model is this. The consistent use of the term with the steady drumbeat of what it means can be an effective constraint on practices that threaten those firmly held perceptions that endear college sports to the American public. And that's it. So again, the context in which that linguistic subterfuge was undertaken is so important because it's serving the same purpose in this external threat by Congress as uh, Walter Byers' invention of the student-athlete served with the external threat of workers' compensation liability and workers' compensation commissions and boards. And it's just a page. I mean, they just, Renfro just tore a page out of Walter Byers' playbook and repurposed it for Miles Brand in 2003. And when Renfro talks about that term being an effective constraint on practices that threaten the perception of the NCAA, he's talking about Congress. And he's looking at these external threats and he's saying, we need to rededicate ourselves to our propaganda campaign because what ultimately matters here is perception. And that is just an open admission of that. And that's exactly what Walter Byer said in his 1995 tell-all book on sportsmanlike conduct when he was describing the purpose of the student-athlete. It's not the truth of the business model. It's how you describe it. It's how you characterize it, and it's how it's perceived. That's what matters to the NCAA. And that is essentially the way that they have litigated all these antitrust suits, and it's the way that they have responded to external threats from the United States Congress and state legislatures. And so I really like the way that South Hall and Starowski frame this propaganda campaign because they do it in models that are commonly understood in linguistics and in propaganda studies. And 
That's what the NCAA is best at. It is a propagandist and it has achieved enormous power through propaganda. And now because it is viewed as essentially the final arbiter on all things about college sports and it has been this monopolistic regulatory body that people associate with college sports, it has acquired power over the years so that when it puts an obviously dishonest, misleading, self-serving language into the stream of commerce and American consciousness, people simply accept it without doing any critical evaluation. And South Hall and Strauski refer to that as spontaneous consent. And that's a term of art in linguistics, which means that the powerful interests who acquire power either through folklore, through force and dictatorships, or through some other method, they can use that power for bad purposes by simply changing the language of what they're doing to hide their bad conduct. And then the people who are subject to their authority simply accept it spontaneously without any critical examination. And that dynamic has played out time and time again. And in this perfect storm era of May 2019 to the present, it's just been shocking to me how the media has fallen victim to that dynamic. And some of it's self-interested because we haven't talked about the media much, but they're drinking from the trough too. But there's also this sense that the NCAA is a voice of credibility and they have credible people working for them. And you may not like the business model, but they're what we've got and we're sticking with them. And they just accept these obviously insane principles as if they are revealed truth and they are unchallengeable. And a great example of that is the NCAA working group's invocation of the collegiate model as the foundational framework for any name, image, and likeness compensation. And the collegiate models being used in that context as a substitute for amateurism. And in that context, what you're basically saying with this name, image, and likeness campaign, this dishonest name, image, and likeness compensation campaign, is that, yeah, you can have no compensation, but only within guardrails that prevent you from receiving the compensation. And I mentioned this in an earlier episode. Condoleezza Rice said that explicitly in comments after after the Commission on College Basketball issued its report and chose to punt on name, image, and likeness. But she said, for the life of me, I don't know how you can have meaningful nil compensation within the confines of the collegiate model. And she's absolutely right. You can't. But the NCAA puts that out into the stream of public discourse, and then it gets laundered through uh, sports media outlets and credible mainstream media outlets, and there is spontaneous consent. And if you were to do a poll today and you asked Joe Blow Citizen, who pays attention to what's happening in the world, whether college athletes can receive money for their name, image, and likeness, I'm guessing that almost all of them would say yes. And that would be an absolute false statement. And the NCAA has been brilliant at deception. And that's their stock and trade. And in the name, image, and likeness debate, man, they really poured it on. And uh, when we go through some of the milestone events relating to name, image, and likeness, I'm going to focus on October 29th of 2019, when the Board of Governors adopted an interim report of this working group on name, image, and likeness. And the mainstream media went nuts and there were just dozens and dozens of patently false headlines that said that the NCAA had approved and adopted name, image, and likeness compensation for college athletes. And they did no such thing. And when you actually read the interim report and then you follow all of the work product that came out of that working group, it's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors designed to get to the place where we are now. And that is the NCAA and Power Five's campaign in federal courts and in the United United States Congress to achieve absolute immunities and protections for their business model that, if granted, would allow them to not offer a single nil benefit. And they stopped their voluntary rulemaking on nil when they lost their advantage in Congress. And if they get what they want from Congress and or the Supreme Court, then the nil debate will be snuffed out along with any hope of meaningful nil compensation. And so I'm looking at uh, the time here. I'm probably going to divide this 
discussion of the collegiate model into two episodes. So I want to go ahead and wrap this up, but I, I need to talk about a few things in the context of the way that the NCAA has used the collegiate model for linguistic subterfuge. And I want to start with the proposition that the collegiate model has absolutely no coherent definition. And it's just like amateurism in that regard. It hasn't been litigated because the NCAA is wrapped into this amateurism principle to define its interests, and we'll talk maybe more a little bit about that in the next episode. But I just want to talk about the ways that it has been invoked and then how it has just been applied, I think, as a substitute for amateurism, but without any attempt to define it. And so the NCAA in 2013, they added to their Division I manual, and this is at Bylaw 20, which is titled Division Membership, and it talks about the requirements for divisional membership. And it sticks in in 2013 and just, just sticks out because it doesn't really fit with the other parts of Bylaw 20. But uh, Bylaw 20.9 under Division I membership says commitments to the Division I collegiate model. In addition to the purposes and fundamental policy of the National Collegiate Athletic Association as set forth in Constitution 1, Members of Division I support the following commitments in the belief that these commitments assist in defining the nature and purpose of the division. These commitments are not binding on member institutions, but serve as a guide for the preservation of legislation by the division and for planning and implementation of programs by institutions and conferences. And this was adopted in January of 2013. So, that means nothing. And then there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine principles ranging from the commitment to amateurism, to fair competition, the commitment to institutional control and compliance, the commitment to student-athlete well-being, and on and on. All of those commitments are simply pulled from the NCAA Constitution, Article 2, which is the principles for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics. And there's this list of all these fluffy things that the NCAA does, does nothing with. And when I was talking about the term the student-athlete being used over 2,300 times in the Division One manual, the, the term well-being, and that's where I got the well-being phrase from, from this principle two-point whatever the hell it is in the Constitution. But there's a principle of athlete well-being. Well, the phrase well-being is used, I think, five times in the entire 451-page manual. So they have all these fluffy things that mean absolutely nothing. But in this section 20.9, all they do is describe the collegiate model, and then they list all these things, pulling them out of Article 2, without any context and without any definition. And you never hear the NCAA referring to the collegiate model in the context of its inclusion in the Division One manual. And then in 2018, when the Commission on College Basketball published its report and made recommendations on how to clean up college basketball. And I'll, I'll devote an episode or two to that down the line. And I've written about this in my blog, and I'll link to the blog posts. But buried in the middle of that document, and the document's like 50, 55 pages, and in one paragraph on page 28, under the heading, Development of a Framework and Commission Recommendations, the report says this, In assessing both the challenges and the potential reforms, the Commission accepted as its foundational principle the collegiate model of athletic competition. The commission's recommendations seek to support and further both the NCAA purpose and its members' acceptance of responsibility for its achievement. But th there's no definition of the collegiate model. So the collegiate model has just been swept into this document that's the product of six, seven months of intensive study by some of America's best and brightest. And nobody asks, well, what was the collegiate model? And if you ask that question, there wouldn't be an intelligent answer because it has no fixed definition. It is just this vaporous concept that is used whenever the NCAA needs to use it to justify its underhanded business model. 
So they accepted as the foundational principle the collegiate model of athletic competition. So there had to be some discussion. For that paragraph to be included in that document, there had to be some discussion at the brainstorming level about how this report was going to be framed and what principles they were going to adopt to guide their thinking and their investigation and their recommendations. But there is absolutely nothing in that report that even suggests a definition of the collegiate model. And interestingly, even though section 20.9 from the Division I manual, which is the only written explication of the collegiate model in NCAA literature, there's no reference to that in the commission's report. So if the collegiate model is your foundational principle, why don't you reference section 20.9? And I, I don't know why that's the case. And Importantly, at the time that the commission was doing its work and issuing its report, the Austin case was moving through the litigation process, through the discovery phase, and into the trial preparation phase. And you had briefing being done there. And then after the district court issued its decision, you've had at least seven substantive briefs that have been filed by the NCAA. And I'm I'm not talking about the, the conference briefs in addition to this. I'm just talking about briefs filed under the NCAA's name. And I may be missing one, but I did word counts and I went back to all those briefs. So while the NCAA's working group on nil is shoving the collegiate model down Congress's throat, and the word amateur doesn't exist in any of those documents. And the Commission on College Basketball is framing its issues around the collegiate model. In the Austin litigation, in the appellate briefing, with over 300 pages and tens of thousands of words, the word amateur appears 327 times. It's everywhere. Guess how many times the phrase the collegiate model appears. Zero. Not once. Now, <laughs> you, you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? And what's going on is that amateurism is a bad word. It has a bad reputation. And talking about amateurism in the context of name, image, and likeness, or in the Commission on College Basketball's report, draws attention to the Austin case because that's where the amateurism battle is really being fought. And the reason that they're stuck with amateurism there and they refuse to acknowledge even the existence of the collegiate model is that the Board of Regents language, the magic dicta from Board of Regents, speaks in terms of amateurism and the NCAA has to use that, and they used amateurism in O'Bannon and Austin as their pro-competitive justification for their compensation limits. So they're litigating amateurism down to the most minute, granular detail, but not once, not once do they mention the collegiate model. And the collegiate model has become this really almost invisible force that floats around from project to project as a firewall, just as amateurism has served, but it serves as a firewall to any criticism or any scrutiny of the NCAA's compensation limits and their agreement to fix the price of labor and to enforce that through a monopolistic regulatory authority that is the NCAA. And the NCAA was very disciplined in staying away from the collegiate model because look, think about how this would play out. Let's say that you're using amateurism because of Board of Regents and you have to use that word, but you really are operating under this vaporous collegiate model and you use the term collegiate model in your briefing in Austin, the court's going to say, what is this? And then not only are you going to have to acknowledge that it's really being used as a substitute for amateurism, but they're also going to be called to the carpet because they won't be able to, to define it at all. Just as after 10 years of litigation in O'Bannon and Austin, the NCAA couldn't offer a coherent, intelligent definition of amateurism, they can't do that with the collegiate model. So they just put the collegiate model in the closet, locked the door, swallowed the key so that there was no chance that they were going to have to defend that in litigation. So in the litigation scenario, the collegiate model is like, no, 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 no. But in the Senate, in this nil debate, in the Commission on College Basketball, and I forgot this one, the Uniform Law Commission is putting together a draft name, image, and likeness compensation, a model legislation that states can adopt if they want to. And the unstated but underlying principle is the collegiate model. And they haven't even defined it in the bill itself, the proposals that have been discussed so far. 
So the collegiate model just sort of gets inserted without anybody asking what it is. And in these hearings in the Senate, so the working group comes out and says, yeah, this is all built around the collegiate model, collegiate model, collegiate model. They carry that framework into their campaign in the Senate in May of 2019. And there has not been all these hearings four hearings across three committees. And I'm familiar with all those hearings. I'll go back to do a a word search again, but I don't recall the mention of the collegiate model, much less any senator asking an NCAA or Power 5 representative, what is the collegiate model? Define it. And the fact that those questions aren't asked speaks to the power of the spontaneous consent that South Hall and Starowski identify. And we're just, the NCAA is just hoping we're all just a bunch of sheep. And they're hoping that about the United States senators and members of Congress. And they certainly assume that about the media. And in many cases, they're right. But there is virtually no critical, intelligent pushback on the most basic philosophical principles, values-based principles that serve as the framework for all of these things that the NCAA and Power Five are trying to shove down America's throat to preserve their business model. And that's the sole goal here. So, all right. With that, I'm going to close this episode out. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk about how Miles Brand took this initial conceptualization of the collegiate model and then really put it into a specific framework that he articulated with some precision in his 2006 State of the Association speech. And it's in that speech that we see for the first time the only practical value that the collegiate model has in the many faces that that it has worn uh, since it was invented in 2003. And that is as a justification for the massive diversion of wealth from black revenue producing athletes to wealthy white interests. And that is really the most consequential byproduct of the collegiate model, in my judgment, just as with amateurism, for all, to all the purposes it's been put, its most effective purpose has been to act as a compensation limit, a fixed price on the cost of labor. And that was said in 1956. So there you have it. That's the end of the episode. And thanks so much for joining me. It's always an honor to have you along for the journey. And I hope to see you back again for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.